The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. I've used this uh, ironic benediction many times at the close of the service, but when I saw that this was included in the readings for this week, I thought, well, I didn't, I didn't hesitate, being as how the rest of it was all those laws and stuff. So we did that last week. We're going we're to do something. I'm like, oh, oh, good. It was at the very end of the abbreviated reading for this week. I was like reading through it and going, oh, no, oh, no, oh the ironic benediction. Yes. So that's where we are today. But I think, so the question for us is, what does it actually mean? It looks like God wants to bless his people, right? So does God want to bless his people? Absolutely. God wants to bless his people. But what does that mean? Well, it means different things for different people. Charles Taylor, Canadian philosopher, wrote, in his monumental work, A Secular Age, which I'm still plowing my way through. It's like 700 pages, and it's a little dense. But um, he talks about how we got from the very earliest times to what we have now, which he calls a secular age. When he says that up until a few hundred years ago, uh, most people could not even consider life without God. But now there are multiple viewpoints that people have, as, as you know. And um, so how did we get from there to now? And he says it came about through three different major facets of deism. Now, we're not going to go into all the major facets of deism or anything. But I want to remind you what deism is. It's, it's best described if we think about a clock. When a clockmaker makes a clock, he doesn't have to sit next to it and move the hands to the right time every minute. No, he sets it up so that it will run, and it'll run on his own. He doesn't need to intervene with that. That is basically the idea of deism, that God sets up the world. He sets up the world for us. He's not directly involved. He's still there and he's involved, but he's not too involved so that he's not too demanding of what you do. You, what you want to do, you can do. Um, and so he's not that demanding. He's not particularly personal. Um, and he made the world to run on its own. And so one of the principles, one of the things that many Americans believe is that if you live a good life, the idea behind the whole thing is if you live a good life, you will be blessed. In other words, everything will go well for you. And we have bought into that. If you live a good life, you will be blessed. The truth be told, this is what most Americans believe. They actually believe there's a God. The ones that don't believe in God are, are a much smaller minority. Most people believe in some kind of a God and that the world was set up for them and that if they do what they're supposed to do, then God will assure that they live a blessed life. 
So if you just gave this benediction a cursory look, it fits everyone's paradigm. God is there to bless us. The very end of verse 27, and I will bless them. The literal translation is, I myself will bless them. He's just going to pour out his blessings. This fits very nicely. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is that that's not what's going on here at all. That's not what's going on here at all. So I want us to look at three things from this benediction this morning, as you might be surprised about. Number one, where the blessing comes from. Number two, what the blessing is. And number three, how do we get it? Very simple. Where does the blessing come from? What the blessing is and how we get it. So let's look at where the blessing comes from. Well, the answer is very simple. It comes from the Lord. That's what it says in verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. Well, who is the Lord? Well, the word here used is the most common usage of the word for God in the entire Bible. It's the word Yahweh. Now, in the original Hebrew, uh, not, I'm not talking about even the Hebrew Bibles we have now. In the very early manuscripts, there were no vowel points at all. Uh, they assumed the vowel points, so they were just consonants. It was Y-H-W-H in, in English. Um, and so the Hebrew pronunciation would be yud he vav yud he vav They would say all four of the letters. That was the name of God. At one point, the Pharisees didn't even want to say that name, so they replaced it with Adonai. Uh, long story, but we won't go into that. But anyway, the most... Um, the most used name for God in the Bible. This is the proper name of God. It's, uh, it's the name given to Moses at the burning bush, which means I am he who I am, or I am the existing one, or I am the one that exists. Um, and essentially, his name identifies his character. And so when he was saying it to Moses, he was saying it this way. His name means faithful presence, faithful presence. The God who always was, always will be, and is, and he's faithful to his people. That is all the implication in this word, Yahweh, when it says the Lord. Um, and why is that important? Because he uses that three times in this very short benediction. Three times. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine. The Lord lift up his countenance. It's three times it uses the Lord, which means it's important. Well, why is he being so redundant? Ian Duguid in his commentary says, why is there so much emphasis here on where our blessing comes from? Surely it is because of our natural tendency to look for blessing in all the wrong places. In some ways, the entire Bible is a call of God to his people to turn away from idols. Consider this from Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. How are we doing with this in our world? The Centers for Disease Control recently released its report on, it's called Youth Risk Behavior Data or Data Summary and Trends Report from 2011 to 2021. 
basically the last decade. And this is what they say. If there, were, if there was one headline above all the others, it would be this, teen girls are in crisis. This is the CDC now, the government agency. Teen girls are in crisis. Listen to these statistics from the report. Nearly one in three high school girls have considered suicide. This is a 60% rise in the last decade. Nearly 15% have been forced to have sex. About six in 10 girls reported being so consistently sad or hopeless that they stepped away from regular activities. The Washington Post in an article about this uh, report entitled The Crisis in American Girlhood says this about the statistics. These girls are growing up in a social media culture with impossible beauty standards, online hate, academic pressure, economic difficulty, self-doubt, and sexual violence. The isolation and upheaval of COVID made it tougher still. So what is our society saying you need to have a blessed life? You need to be beautiful, skinny, get good grades, get an education so you can make good money, be available relationally to do anything to keep that boyfriend, be popular, be bubbly, and any number of other things. That's the Washington Post saying that. But of course, on social media, you can't possibly live up to those standards because you compare yourself to everybody under the sun. And it's a constant, a constant search. And it's devastating. But it goes beyond that. It goes beyond that. Our society has told these young girls that if they find their authentic selves, they will be happy and blessed. They just need to be honest about who they are. And this, of course, means who they feel they are. And it's really about feelings. Follow the path of your feelings and you'll be blessed. This is the promise. You follow your feelings and you will truly live a blessed life. But it so contradicts the CDC report, doesn't it? Kids are going down very dark rabbit holes and some of them don't come up. Some of them just don't come up. The whole thing comes down to where does your blessing come from? What is the source of your blessing? See, the real search for everyone, whether they know it or not, is the search for meaning and for something deeper. It's actually a search for God. This is what everybody is looking for. And these kids are searching for God without even knowing it but they are not finding him because they have, in, in Jeremiah's words, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves that are broken and can hold no water. These are, these are lies. And it's bearing out with the statistics. They're dying of thirst. And I wonder, would we be the ones that would hold out a glass of water with compassion and love But adults aren't that much different. How many shattered dreams have you had? How many hard life moments have you had? How many broken relationships have you had? How many times have you been devastated? 
And many, because of these things, have walked away from God because they think that the promise to bless is just not true. He's not giving me what I think I deserved. I've lived a good life. I've done all the things I'm supposed to do, and I'm not getting blessed. But they've actually misunderstood what the blessed life actually is. See, it's, it's not a life where God blesses my plans. I have plans and I do what I want and he comes beside me and he blesses me. It's actually a life where we seek him as the fount of living waters and that, and that it is only from his hand that blessing comes. He is the only source of a blessed life, the only one. Been thinking about this a lot as my dream for Eastside Presbyterian Church. I, I dream of a place, and I pray about it too, I, I, I dream of a place where the rhythms of our lives all week long are dictated by what we do here in this hour, hour and a half. This, this is a moment in our week where we pause not necessarily to enjoy the music or whatever else happens, but we pause to acknowledge our need and the greatness of our God. See, I, I dream that, and, and I pray that the Spirit will move among us so powerfully that nothing would stop us from being here. It's a place that is so great because we've met with him, we've seen him, we've felt his spirit come, we've been together, united, it's so great. I don't wanna miss that. This is what I'm praying for. Sounds like revival. I pray that this time together would be then what dictates what we do Monday through Saturday. That the glow from what we experienced here through the Holy Spirit of God as he makes Jesus clear to us would just glow for us as we go through our weeks and we have this rhythm. This is the rhythm. This is the way we do our lives. I'm not advocating for some kind of a guilt trip or anything. I'm just talking about a paradigm for life where we seek him with all that we are because he is the fountain of living waters. It's not that you can't find him and you need to be finding him during the week, but it flows out of a time together where this is the most powerful thing we do all week. See, it's only the Lord that gives a blessed life. It's only a focus on him. And we need to see this. Our kids need to see this. The dear, dear teenage girls in our society need to see this, and boys, and everyone. We need to see this. Number two, what the blessing is. Here's the problem with the blessing. We've been so conditioned that the blessed life is a carefree life from financial worries, a life full of friends and plenty of entertainment and vacation opportunities, a life of leisure, a life of travel, and so many other things. But that's not what the Bible describes as a blessed life at all. So I mentioned the deistic approach to God where life, uh, to life where God is supposed to bless us 
if we live good lives. And, and here's the problem with that. It doesn't take into account the suffering that is always a part of life. There is always suffering. There is always hardship that comes. And most Americans don't have any idea what to do with suffering. Have no idea. It's not a category. We move past suffering as fast as we can. We throw money at it. We solve it. We get around it. And we get our kids together and we protect them from any suffering whatsoever. Don't let them suffer. To see your kids suffer is almost more than we can bear. And so we really throw money at stuff like that. We don't have a category for suffering. And so this idea that if I live a good life, God will bless me, it falls apart at every turn. Suffering's out of place in the world where God is supposed to bless me. So we avoid it. But the blessing being talked about here has nothing to do with thing, whether things go well or things are going poorly. So what is the blessing? Look at verses 25 and 26. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So these are two related phrases. Um, make his face shine upon you and lift up his countenance upon you. And what's interesting is those are synonyms. They're actually in the, in the Hebrew, they're the same word. The word pane um, for, for face and for countenance. It's the exact same word. Most translations translate it with the two different uh, words, but some translations just use face for both of them. Um, so let's look at the two phrases. First, the face, first that his face shines upon us. What is he talking about? Uh, that the Lord make his face to shine upon you. This is the best way I can describe it. Have you seen the faces of two people that are madly in love when they're talking to one another? Have you seen the face of a mother when her baby is cooing at her? Have you seen the face of a father when his son hits his first home run? <laughs> These don't even describe the face of God on the people he loves. His face shines with delight, with delight. Do you struggle believing that? That he would actually look at you with delight? How about the second phrase? He lifts up his countenance upon us. So the idea here of this phrase is that not only does he look at, but he turns to look at us. It's a turning to face towards us, to give us attention. He's this great God that lives in unapproachable light. He lives beyond the galaxies. He's immense. He's so transcendent. And yet he turns his face and he looks at us. He's fond of us. He loves us. He's gracious to us. He approves of us. He's placing his favor on us. He delights in us. His heart warms at the sight of us. Can we say any more? I don't think I can come up with any more phrases. Do you see how different this is than just wanting God to bless my plans? 
God, I've got my life worked out. You just come in and bless it, and I know what I'm doing. No, we don't. And here's the one that looks on us with this kind of favor. So what is happening here is that the only judge in the universe, the only important opinion that actually matters, the creator of all things is saying that he approves of us. If that's true, and it is, then we can get through any suffering, anything this world has to offer pales in comparison. It's actually not that important. We don't have to measure up on social media. We don't have to solve our own issues. We don't have to have status or be important. We can suffer through financial or relational crisis. This is why missionaries can go overseas and give their lives. And I, I've said this before, but from Calvin Geneva, they sent 2,000 missionaries to Africa. The average lifespan was six months and they did it gladly. Why? Because he was shining his face on them. And his countenance was lifted up and he turned towards them and he approved of them. What else, what else do we need? I'm always mesmerized by what the book of Zephaniah says. Zephaniah 3.14, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, that, that's who we are. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let your hands grow weak. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. That's in the Bible. Do you believe that? It's in the Bible. See, here's the blessing. It's God himself. He is the blessing. Why would we make for ourselves leaky cisterns when he's the fountain of every blessing and he is blessing? To know him is to be blessed. And the result of that from verse 26 is shalom. It's peace, ease, unaffectedness, being whole, intactness, well-being, state of health, peace, prosperity, all results of understanding his favor and seeking him. That's the blessing. So how do we get it? How do we get it? What's really strange about this benediction is that it shows up at the end of Leviticus and the first five chapters of Numbers, all these laws about the holiness of God, and let's stone this and kill that and Put away that, and your, for your God is holy. How many times does it come back and say that? Over and over and over and over again. That's what's going on. This is the context of this thing. So you got all these laws, and then we get this benediction. What do we do with that? So many places that God in the Old Testament talks about blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. It feels very conditional to me. Does it feel conditional to you? If you obey, he'll bless you. If you disobey, he will curse you. This is all over the place in the Old Testament. 
Feels like conditional love to me. And then we get a benediction like this, where it says that God is gracious and he turns his face onto his people and he gives them peace. And we read, a, we read something from Zephaniah where he says he sings over his people. Well, those are all signs of con- unconditional love. And it's everywhere, right? The first two chapters of Zephaniah are all about judgment on Judah and on Judah's enemies and on everybody's. There's going to be judgment lashed out everywhere. And then suddenly we're in this where he's singing over us. And it's like, what? Snap, you know, snip, snap. I don't know where I am. This is all over the Old Testament. Has it ever confused you about the Bible? So here's the question, is God's love for his people conditional or is it unconditional? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Does that surprise you? Here's the deal. The only way that he would be able to show unconditional love because the law is conditional. Obey or you die. That is the law. The wages of sin is death. Conditionality, the law is conditional. There are no, there's no wiggle room. It is perfect or nothing. So there's all kinds of conditional phrases in the Old Testament. It's perfect or nothing, or you die, or you have no shot. So we know the only way he could offer conditional love in a, in a, a blessing like this one was that he himself would have to fulfill the conditionality of the law. He had to do it because we couldn't. James says, if you break the law in one point, you're a lawbreaker. Just one point. I don't think anybody would say they hadn't broken the law in one point. Who of us hasn't done that? But see, this is the gospel. Jesus Christ, who's the second person of the Trinity, who lived in unapproachable light, like we saw last week, who is the creator of all that is, became a man so that on behalf of his people, he could fulfill the conditionality of the law. And God the Father treated him as if he had broken the law in our place. And Jesus descended into hell, as it were, on the cross so that we could get off scot-free. Scot-free. So do you understand why his life is just as important as his death? His life came so that he could fulfill on every single point of the law. He could obey every single thing that we did not obey. And then he goes to a cross and our sins are placed on him and he dies a criminal's death so that our sins would be cast away as far as the east is from the West. He did that so that this benediction could be true. See, he didn't receive any blessing on the cross. He received curses on the cross so that we could read this benediction and say, that's me. That's, that's what God does for me. He shines on me. He turns his face towards me. He gives me peace. This is the God. He is the God of blessing. Jesus did that for us.
It's interesting parallels. This was a benediction pronounced over the people by Aaron, the high priest. Well, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our high priest. He's our once and for all high priest. And he declares this benediction over your life. So the last thing we need to just look at is who are his people? Who are his people? It's those who have faith in Jesus as their only hope in life and in death, that their very lives have been purchased by him and they belong to him, that he's not a means to an end toward a blessing, but he is the end in itself. Do you see how that works? Our culture's idea of blessing is to use God, you bless me and my plans. That's not loving God, that's using God to get what I want, to be blessed. But the God of the Bible is asking for us to love him for who he is. He is an end in himself. To know him is to be blessed beyond anything that we could dream or imagine, that he is more beautiful than anything the world could offer. That to have him is to have everything, and to not have him is to, not, is to have nothing. If this is you, then he is this benediction is over you. Believe it. I take, O cross, thy shadow for my abiding place. I ask no sunshine than the sunshine of his face, content to let the world go by, to know no gain or loss, my sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all the cross. That's the gospel, and it changes everything. Let's pray. Lord.